0: I wanted to ask you, given you've now mocked, I think, every degree I've ever done, what did you study? Mm-hmm. What, like, desperately important... Oh, I
1: studied the single most <laughs> useless of university degrees, English.
0: I knew it. I knew it. You paid it money was, to read it books was for actually four pointless. years.
1: Oh, I, didn't, I didn't pay money, Amy. I'm 41. Right, yeah. the, the UK government paid money for me to read books. Everything was free. Yeah. Last year of everything being free. Oh, was it? And yeah. so I... Yes, so, so I used it to be indifferently taught Shakespeare. I
0: mean, that's a pretty nice way to spend your, your early 20s. It's
1: basically how to bullshit. I mean, that's the only thing that, uh, in particular, an Oxbridge education is really directed towards, mm-hmm. particularly in the humanities, is how to appear superficially clever um, in the space of, you know, about 40 minutes, which is <laughs> why... I
0: was going to say, speaking of which, let's get on with the podcast. <laughs> Hello and welcome back to Don't Touch Your Face, Foreign Policy's weekly podcast on the coronavirus pandemic. I'm Amy McKinnon, a staff writer with Foreign Policy.
1: And I'm Jones Palmer, Foreign Policy's deputy editor.
0: On this week's episode, we're going to look at how the pandemic has shaped our relationship with technology in ways both good and bad. Later on, we'll hear from James Mwangi, the chairman of the board of Safe Hands Kenya, which has used big data and technology to get hand washing stations, masks and cleaning products to Kenyan neighbourhoods that are most in need. Later on, we'll also be joined by Dipayan Ghosh, a former tech policy advisor to the Obama White House, to discuss how the pandemic may have set back efforts to regulate big tech in the United States. But first this.
2: Hey, listeners, it turns out that our collective action can stop more than just global pandemics. Discover reasons for hope on the climate crisis with Heat of the Moment, a new series from FP Studios and the Climate Investment Funds. Look for it wherever you get your podcasts.
0: So this is going to be a podcast in two acts. And in the second half, we're going to look at some of the more concerning tech trends to be coming out of this whole pandemic issue. But in an effort to not be too gloomy, let's start by looking at some of the positives because, let's face it, this experience would have been infinitely more miserable if we didn't have the internet and technology. I mean, can you imagine living through a pandemic without the internet?
1: It's very hard to sort of imagine what would have happened if this had hit in the 1980s. And I think social distancing just wouldn't have happened at all. I think we would have just, like, grit our teeth and gone through it even more mass deaths than we have. Because life would have been so yeah. impossible. I mean, and business would have been so impossible. Functionality would have been so impossible. So, you know, you would have maybe mm-hmm. been able to shut away the, some of the retired and elderly. But um, for mo- for 99% of workplaces, uh, nothing could have been done. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, in, yeah. in a way, I guess we were, it seems strange to say this, lucky that this came along when it did so of course that in itself was partially a product of living in these um highly globalized highly interconnected times
0: yeah i mean presumably in the 80s it would have spread less because of less international travel than we have now
1: well i mean it probably i mean similar things probably did Uh, you know there's every chance Mm. that numerous kind of zoonotic diseases emerged um in other remote parts of big countries during the 20th century as they did throughout history but just kind of burnt out and died in like one village you know like 20 people mm. get sick and one person dies in a remote village in like uh in like Sichuan and that and then that's it mm-hmm. the virus has no you know path to the future but in the modern era of course the virus was able to pick up its bags and really make a success of itself on the world stage
0: <laughs> yeah it has been amazing, though, watching some of the innovation around this, the different apps and uses of technology. Um, a few weeks ago, maybe it was a month ago, I don't know, I've completely lost track of time, um, I uh, was on a, a panel an online, again, another great use of the internet, a digital panel event with the Atlantic Council, with um, Audrey Tang, who's the digital minister for Taiwan. And they've done some incredible stuff in Taiwan. I mean, the very uh, origins of how they learned about This suspicious (laughs) virus which was spreading in Wuhan is incredible. Do you know it?
1: Yeah, it's because the health minister was on basically the Taiwanese equivalent of 4chan, basically a scurrilous message board. Uh, and he happened yeah. to be browsing it at like eleven o'clock at night and saw this these posts describing like this cluster of cases and was like, "Huh, this looks like something I should look at in my job in my daytime job as the health minister of the country, so you know,
0: I think it was the it was the deputy director of
1: oh yeah, yeah, it was the it was the deputy director of the of the CDC. Of the c d c yeah, yeah. Okay. so basically ship posting really saved. <laughs> At least played a, a major part, and I mean, I'll say I was seeing I was seeing stuff uh, um, in uh, on Chinese Twitter like in early January, but just mm-hmm. didn't take it quite seriously enough then. I mean, that because you sort of instinctively dismiss it until the stuff starts piling up. But it, we wouldn't see these things at all if it wasn't for technology. Even though our picture of yeah. China is growing increasingly opaque because the censorship has become so so bad online mm-hmm. and we don't have we don't even have as good a picture of provincial Chinese life as we did five years ago or 10 years ago when you had this really lively kind of Chinese internet nevertheless we would have nothing without it um and yeah it's one it's the only it's the way that we can tell for instance that there aren't major outbreaks or things being concealed because you would see them showing up in in TikTok feeds and this sort of thing and um, posts about like you know my mum went to hospital yesterday and there are a bunch of other people there and so forth and all this stuff is very hard to read but we but the only way we we get it is through uh, the internet.
0: Yeah, definitely. Have you taken up any new kind of online habits during this? Like anything that you did before in the real world that you're that you now have adapted to online?
1: Um, playing Dungeons and Dragons, basically. Just on Zoom, it's uh, nice. Yes,
0: but now that like panel events, book talks, tons of cool stuff is now online, and actually is actually being pretty high highly produced. It's kind of incredible that you can access that anywhere in the world. And having come from you know a small village in a rural area, the thought that you know I could be back home in Scotland watching book talks in Washington D.C., just you know discussions on you know, any number of to- on topics, it's pretty cool how that's it's opened up the world a little bit in that way.
1: Yeah, I mean, that leveling effect, which was supposed to be one of the yeah. things that tech caused, but it didn't. You know, originally what you had, in fact, was that tech destroyed all these local industries and local, you know, you, you um, went from being able to have a thriving ad, ad agency in like, I don't know, like Pittsburgh, to mm-hmm. all the ad agencies being in New York because their clients could reach them anywhere, and so they clustered in one city. And um, yeah. but now that office literal office space is dissolved for the moment, you are seeing mm-hmm. some of that leveling effect and and some of those sort of things being pushed online, which is you know yeah. it, it's nice. It's nice to see.
0: Yeah, I was reading yesterday that Facebook is now going to allow a lot of its staff to work from home indefinitely or as long as they want basically but they're going to adjust salaries based on where they end up living so you can work for Facebook but if you move to Arkansas you're not going to get your Silicon Valley salary.
1: In fairness to them that's been standard practice I mean that's standard practice in the UK almost every big company has a London living allowance.
0: Of course no yeah but no but I think I think it's great though I mean that you could you know have a the, the thriving tech career that you want and, and maybe move back to your hometown, move to a rural area. I mean, it's good for those areas. They're getting more money moving in, mixing up the gene pool a little bit. Uh, and housing prices could go down as well in you know, in places like San Francisco, New York.
1: Here's the thing, though. I, the, the problem with working remotely is that working remotely works fine for whatever job you have, but it makes getting a new job way more difficult it's way it's way easier to acquire a job in the field if you're in the place where people are where you're like going to parties and mixing and so on and you know while we don't have that in the moment i'm pretty certain that socializing is going to return um i mean we're seeing it returning in the next sort of few months um and that that socialization is the actual benefit um not Mm. the office so yeah i'm i'm not I'm beginning to become more and more skeptical of the idea that the pandemic will cause these permanent reshapings, um, rather and uh, rather than leaving you know these sort of odd little legacies behind.
0: So you're telling me that my dreams of moving to West Virginia and writing about foreign policy are not?
1: Uh, I mean, in the short term, you know, you should perhaps take yourself off to the Adirondacks like, or like.
0: No one can pronounce that I, word. No, I can't. Or at, le- at least Adir, none
1: aren't
0: To the big
1: mountains.
0: We can tell you intimately about uh, contact lines in uh, frozen conflicts in the former Soviet Union, but don't ask us how to pronounce the Adirondacks.
2: The coronavirus has swept the world and forced drastic measures to defeat it. It's also proving, though, what is possible in the fight against another major global threat, climate change. Heat of the Moment is a new series by FP Studios and the Climate Investment Funds. It tells the story of those on the front lines of changing the way that we eat, travel, and live our lives. This podcast outlines not only the great challenges that face us, but also looks for a new path forward. Look for Heat of the Moment wherever you get your podcasts.
0: So East Asian countries have gotten a lot of attention for the clever ways in which they've harnessed technology to curb the spread of the virus, but there are incredible initiatives like this going on all around the world. Earlier, I spoke to James Mwangi, the chairman of the board of Safe Hands Kenya, an alliance of organisations which has so far distributed 40 tonnes of soap to communities in Kenya, using big data to target those most in need. Here's our conversation. Well, thank you so much for joining me. I'm really excited to hear about the work of Safe Hands. Could you start by just telling me, you know, why are lockdowns and stringent social distancing measures more difficult to implement in the Kenyan context? Um,
3: I think the challenge with lockdowns when you impose it in an environment where people are truly at a subsistence level, not just in small pockets of deprivation, but across the majority of the population, it becomes something that's extremely difficult to sustain for any meaningful period of time.
2: Mm-hmm. And
3: even if you can get people to stay in their homes, when you get some of the truly informal settlements, you realize that's not really accomplishing much because you've got people living so close together that it can easily spread house to house right. or, or um, tenement to tenement, even with people not necessarily going outside. Mm
0: hmm. So in this context, how is Safe Hands Kenya looking to address the challenge of of COVID-19?
3: So Safe Hands Kenya proceeds from the recognition that while there have been useful efforts by the government to restrict movement in particular ways and to nudge people towards social distancing, uh, that has limited effect. Moreover, to the extent that we are relying on our health systems, they are extremely limited to begin with, which means that it's not very hard to foresee an environment in which they are very quickly overwhelmed. And so, one of the few cost effective and scalable levers we can use is go after the behavioral and other drivers of infection. And what do we know? We know that regular hand washing reduces uh, the presence of the virus on hands and on surfaces. We know that regular cleaning of surfaces reduces the chances of someone picking it up from touching those surfaces. We know that the mass adoption of masks reduces the chances of an individual spreading the virus to others through uh, coughing or expectoration. None of these things cost a lot individually to do. And when coupled Mm -hmm. with meaningful behavior change, you can see a massive reduction in the rate of spread, even within a community that has limited ability to practice distancing. So that's what we've zeroed in on. It's practical, it's Mm -hmm. simple, practicing a set of interventions uh, whose technologies have existed since time immemorial.
0: So tell me about the distribution system that you've created. Firstly, what are you distributing, and 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 how are you doing it?
3: Um, so we are we are currently focused on three main products to distribute, uh, and then a broader behavior change project. Uh, So the first is uh, hand washing in public spaces, and that involves setting up hand washing stations with water reservoirs and soap. The second thing is uh, regular surface cleaning and disinfection uh, of public surfaces, and this is literally going around on doorknobs and other frequently touched surfaces uh, and regularly wiping them down to make sure that if someone who was exposed to the virus did touch them, you, you clean them off. And the third is masks. So approved three-ply masks at a, a decent level of quality uh, distributed for mass adoption. Now, none of these things represents a major breakthrough in technology. But what we have done is layered in, firstly, uh, real rigor in geospatial analysis. So actually understanding what are the most vulnerable locations in the country based on a set of, mm. of variables and targeting those first. And then once you've deployed these hand-washing stations or other interventions, tracking where you have interventions in place. The other thing we've done is we've harnessed a gig economy workforce through the link platform so that we're saying in every neighborhood, you often have skilled artisans present, especially in Mm -hmm. low-income neighborhoods. Rather than have some people going from neighborhood to neighborhood without credibility and installing hand-washing stations and then doing the cleaning, we're using the Mm -hmm. link platform to actually mobilize capacity in each neighborhood to serve that neighborhood. So they're earning an income, but they're also uniquely positioned in terms of their, uh, their local credibility uh, and insights. Uh, and then finally, uh, we're using the various platforms, WhatsApp, Instagram, and others, to basically shift the perception of various kinds of behaviors and move them into the center of, uh, of daily practice.
0: And what does T-Bunny Sisi mean?
3: Uh, we are the cure.
0: And so when you get these products into communities, the masks and sanitation products, are they, are they freely available or are they for sale?
3: They are free. So we have mm-hmm. focused on specifically the public good uh, opportunity here. One of the things we're trying to do with Safe Hands is say, can we create the capacity on a non-profit basis among existing private sector actors uh, to respond to a crisis in their own backyard? And so each of these companies is saying, you know what, I will suspend the profit motive and I will Mm -hmm. for the period of this crisis essentially make myself and my capabilities an NGO uh, because Mm -hmm. we don't have NGOs at the scale that is needed for the crisis that is currently with us uh, or to the extent that they do exist, they themselves are are struggling to balance between places. And so maybe that's the last point I want to make. and It's almost a call to action to the private sector everywhere. Um, when faced with the choice between sending you know just shutting down versus finding an impactful use for the capacity and time and workers and knowledge that you have f- you models like safe hands hopefully can nudge others to say well how can i repurpose and help fight this challenge because it's only by fighting it that we can get back to business as usual
0: thank you so much for taking the time to talk this was really interesting
3: thank you very much
0: that was james mwangi of safe hands kenya So my discussion with James there, I think, is the perfect example of the good that technology and data can do when it's in the right hands. But it's also not hard to see how this crisis has opened up just a bonanza of new opportunities for bad actors and authoritarian regimes to go wild with the the new opportunity for surveillance powers. I mean, what has it been like in China? Are there concerns that these COVID apps could be used to spy on people?
1: Oh, I mean, they are being used to spy on people. And in fact, the in China, the COVID apps grew out of the systems of surveillance that were already in place. So it was possible to trace people spending on WeChat, for instance, because the government was already very well set up to do that. Um, there were all these systems that had been kind of in nascent form, like cameras at uh, Beijing compounds, sealed gates, and so on, where that simply hadn't been switched on in most of China, weren't being actively used um, Because they caused interference in everyday life, they slowed things down. Um, But during the pandemic, with good reason, all those systems were turned on. And the problem is now, like, the problem is now it's very hard for the government to turn them off because um, the temptation is to keep them there not only for the pandemic, but also for control in general the desire, increasing desire of an extremely politically paranoid state to try and know everything. Um, and that strips away, you know, even the vaguest notion that the authorities might not be watching.
0: So, when Russia does, you know, big tech surveillance, it's often pretty ham-fisted. Um, and we've seen this with the social monitoring app, which which they've used um for COVID patients that are well enough to to convalesce in their homes. You have to download this app when you are I don't know diagnosed, or if you're have COVID-ish symptoms Um, and it has just wild blanket access to not only your location I mean the whole the whole point of the app is it's supposed to make sure you're not leaving your home and infecting other people but so it gets access to your location but also your calls your camera network information sensors um, and just you know tons of other stuff which doesn't you know which rights advocates have said doesn't feel super necessary for a you know contact tracing app um but it's also just been spectacularly botched as well so the app sends you notifications um and ask you to take a selfie of yourself proving that you're that you're at home but and if you don't if you don't respond to the no- notification within a certain amount of time you get a fine but it's been sending people these messages in the middle of the night when they're asleep and so people are just getting fined willy-nilly for missing out on these notifications um and there was one woman even in a Russian news story that I was reading who had you know had covid started to go downhill called an ambulance when she was in the ambulance she fell asleep and so she missed a notification and she got fined even though she was on her way to the hospital with COVID-19 and so this is all a very long wind up to my question which is is China better at that, at authoritarian tech? Are they? I feel like they're a little bit slicker when they implement these things. Yeah.
1: I mean, so they—they they are. It's slicker, and it's been—it's been implemented for longer. Like the way that the Chinese Great Firewall is much more encompassing in its ability to the ability yeah. to remove information, uh, much more totalizing than in, in Russia. But the other thing is, of course, because the system is more totalizing, it's also much harder to report on the failures. So you know, yeah. one of the things that Russia still has a fairly lively media by the standards of mm-hmm. a heavily authoritarian state. Um, China just doesn't. And so while you so while you ha- you get reports, a lot of them are uh, the reports can't go above a certain level. And there have been social media complaints and so on about about you know failures in the app system and ridiculous results and people being blocked from going to their own house and this kind of thing, um, <laughs> yeah. which is to, which is not a you know. It's something you would expect with a, a tech rollout anywhere, but when it, but we, if there are big systematic failures in exclusion, we haven't seen it, but we would also find it hard to see because those kind of stories just don't get covered. I mean, I think mm. of the time a couple of years ago when the um, the authorities tore out the heating systems in northern China and somewhere between hundreds and tens of thousands of people froze to death, um, which was mm. briefly reported. So it's just it's just so hard it's so hard to know um, but yeah. one of the things in China is that the systems have generally been much more tightly built into existing things that people use so it's like imagine mm. if like imagine if like uh, Twitter and Instagram and your credit card was suddenly drawn into a system that reported all that information to the government to see where you were and what you had been doing so all those permissions that you had already given like the permission that you had given to uber to trace your location so that it can call the cab so that's effectively what china's managed to do um it's not just brute force it's also building on the existing kind of um usefulness Mm -hmm. of something like wechat which is this um you know messaging app that has become a kind of uh, all-in-one app for payment for maps for all kinds of things
0: yeah it's pretty chilling
1: yeah and uh, it's you know um I, know, I, I knew Chinese, like, dissidents or professors or, or who were still refusing to use WeChat in 2017, 2018. But it was just becoming impossible because, for instance, mm-hmm. it was very hard. It was by far the easiest way to pay your electricity bill. All this kind of thing. Mm-hmm.
0: Do you think China will be more authoritarian once this is all over?
1: Yeah, but I don't think that that's a result of the pandemic. I think it's the direction that the Chinese government was already taking under Xi, yeah, and that that, that has mm-hmm. just continued. And we've just seen this with, uh, you know, the um, announcement basically of the the end of rule of law in Hong Kong. Um, the, that there is just this determination to plunge ahead with everything. Now it may be that they think that relative victory in the in the corona crisis has empowered them. But I I think it's a much more unstable and um, dangerous situation than perhaps even the the authorities realize. You know, I think we can overestimate how all-encompassing these systems are. That even in China, Hmm. um, the tech systems are backed by just enormous amounts of man-hours of um, repression. Like, there are millions and millions and millions of Chinese whose job it is to monitor and survey and control and threaten. Just enormous amounts. So even even stuff like the removal of information from the internet, um, in the same way as with, um, say, Twitter or Facebook, um, most of it isn't automated. Most of it is low paid workers uh, just right. taking this stuff out by hand. You know, it's handcrafted censorship. Um, and <laughs> Artisan censorship. Yeah. I mean, so the average Chinese public-facing internet company has to employ about a third of its people on censorship. All these things are subject to so many levels of of, uh, human and technological error.
0: Yeah. And that was something I spoke about actually with our next guest, um, Dipayan Ghosh, who is the co-director of the Digital Platforms and Democracy Project at the Harvard Kennedy School. We spoke about how the pandemic could affect efforts to regulate big tech in the United States. Before the pandemic began, there was increasing scrutiny on Capitol Hill of the big big tech companies, and particularly when it comes to these questions of user privacy and the use of user data. Do you think that lawmakers have the teeth necessary to implement policies to prevent these contact tracing apps from being abused?
4: Well, I think lawmakers policymakers have the capacity but traditionally mm-hmm. over issues of technology regulation even in cases where uh the technology is is one that's being developed by government or being developed by industry for public service let's say as in as is the case here even there th- this is a partisan issue and um uh, we've we've seen in the past uh, past couple of days actually Bills come from Republicans and Democrats uh, being introduced in, in, in Congress um, targeting COVID-19 contact tracing apps um, and, and attempting to address these questions around transparency, around how the data is going to be used and assurances of privacy. And yet there's, there's a bit of a gridlock and um, it's, it's hard to see uh, anything moving forward immediately but it's it's difficult right now to defeat this political gridlock, some of which might actually be affected by uh, some of the lobbying efforts of the industry. We, the public, really need to do a better job of understanding the technology at hand, whether right. it's contact tracing, whether it's location data, uh, wh- whether, it, whether it's other f- forms of data that, that might be used to, to help establish whether we have the virus or or who around us has the virus and, and where we've been, um, these kinds of things are are all run by technology. Mm-hmm. We, we need to understand how these technologies work and make sure that we're comfortable with uh, with sharing our information in, in the ways that we're doing.
0: How do you explain that to people? Because it's pretty clear why we don't want our social security numbers circulating or health records or banking information, but Things like location data, you know, even things like social media data, browsing history. How do you explain to people why it's important that that be handled appropriately?
4: This is, this is the privacy paradox, because you're absolutely right. People don't really care about maintaining privacy of their uh, behavioral information uh, in the here and now. When we sign up for Facebook, for example, we want immediate gratification Uh, Observed through scrolling through our Instagram feeds and and engaging with everybody in our Facebook network. That's why we sign up. And we're not thinking necessarily about the the binary of, you know, once I step over that line, I'm giving permission to this corporation to collect uh, whatever it might wish to collect on me. And what this is doing is it's essentially concentrating power within a select few firms in, in Silicon Valley. And I think what we are going to see in the, in the coming years is that concentration of power among two or three companies in Silicon Valley. When you concentrate that much power within uh, just a couple of companies, they, they start to have uh, ancillary power over, over, for example, the media ecosystem. And, and f- for example, more specifically, mm-hmm. within the media ecosystem, uh, modern political advertising, um, where if you're a Trump campaign or, or, a, or a Biden campaign, to reach the people that you want to reach, or for that matter, a Russian disinformation operator, to, to reach the people that you want to reach to influence them politically, you've got to go through Facebook. And it doesn't make sense to go anywhere besides Facebook, because on Facebook you get your bang for the buck and you can target. Uh, target people using this this universe of data.
0: When we spoke earlier, you said that you were concerned that the big tech could even grow in power during the pandemic. What did you mean by that?
4: What we've been seeing is that public sentiment around uh, around technology has has grown has has become more positive uh, Mm. in the past few Mm -hmm. weeks. And why is this the case? Well, I think it's the, ca- it's the case because we're using these technologies every day. They're, they're helping us connect with our grandmothers and our children and, and our uh, networks of, of friends and classmates. Mm-hmm. What we were seeing before this outbreak was that there was a reform agenda that was taking shape to, to really address these economic and social issues concerning Silicon Valley through uh, privacy reform, through antitrust uh, uh, inquiry uh, of, these, of companies like Facebook and Google and Amazon. Uh, but I think what this pandemic has done is it's, to an extent, derailed that movement. And we need to get it back on the tracks. Because what we cannot have is a couple of companies that are already monopolies secure their position in our society through, uh, through various means, political, economic, uh, strategic, and otherwise, and essentially close off the opportunity to truly enable this comprehensive reform agenda.
0: That was Dipayan Ghosh of the Harvard Kennedy School. That's it for this week. We'll be back next Monday. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. In the meantime, head over to foreignpolicy.com for all the latest news and analysis on how the coronavirus is shaping the world as we know it. And if you have pandemic fatigue, and let's face it, nobody would blame you, we've got plenty of coverage of all the other things happening in the world as well. I'm Amy McKinnon. And I'm James Palmer. Our show is produced by me and Darcy Palder and is edited by Rob Sachs. Our web team includes Laurie Kelly and Kelly Kimball. The executive producer for news and podcasts at Foreign Policy is Dan Efron. Until next time, please remember to wash your hands.
1: And don't touch your face. Mm. Adirondack? Adirondack?
0: Adirondack?